Welcome to Trinity on Tap, the Old Testament, a podcast series brought to you by Trinity College Queensland, presented by Dr. Paul Jones. 2.3, Rules of Reading. Well, welcome back. At the end of the last podcast, I asked you to think on this question. When you read scripture, what unspoken rules guide your understanding? And I want to start this podcast with a similar question, namely, what are some of our simplest rules of reading? What are some of our simplest rules of reading? The ones you never think about. And I know, again, that's an odd question because I'm asking you to think about something you never think about. So let's go right back to basics, though. Think of writing as basically black marks on a white page, yeah? How do you begin to make sense of those black marks? Well, first we group them into words, things we call words. We note where the spaces are between the words. We we look for punctuation, full stops or squiggly question marks or exclamation marks. We read from left to right if you're reading in English. And there are plenty more rules like that, really basic ones. And as adult readers, though, we don't think about these things, do we? They're just second nature. And the same sort of applies as our reading becomes uh, more sophisticated. If you're, if you're accustomed to reading poetry, you'll see other things without thinking about them consciously too. You'll recognise metre or rhyme, stanzas, metaphor, wordplay, onomatopoeia, and all that good stuff from Year 9 English. Uh, a new reader would have to learn those things, but once you become familiar, it, it just becomes more natural and more easy to see them. So the point I'm making here is just that the same goes for reading different literary forms in the Bible. Uh, over time, we learn to recognise them quickly and read accordingly. Which brings us to the first rule of Bible reading. One of the first rules of interpretation is this. Know what you are reading. So the first question I guess we should ask when we open our Bible anywhere is just, what am I reading? If you've got the PDF with you, you could have a look at those three examples that I've got there of different literary forms uh, and just see how you would identify them. You know, are they all read the same way? Um, How do you know how to read them? And so on. What's the difference between them? What are and another another question I guess related to that is what are some of the different literary forms that you come across in your daily life? I've mentioned I think speeding fines and maths equations and um, poems and shopping lists, but there are tons of these literary forms in newspapers or online that we come across. And then what are some of the different literary forms that we know from scripture? I'm going to read you three verses, okay? They're representing different genres. And as you listen, just try to identify them. But more importantly, if you can identify them, ask yourself how knowing what the literary form is affects how you read. In other words, once you identify the genre or literary form, what questions come to mind? Okay, the first one, I won't say the reference because then you'll know what it is. The first one is this, like a dog that returns to its vomit, is a fool who reverts to his folly. What literary form is that? Well, if you said proverb, you're correct. Uh, Some of the questions that we might ask then in order to understand a proverb better are who wrote this or in what situation might this proverb be helpful? Who was it written for? Uh, Which poor soul was this written for? Here's a second one. Uh, Another verse from the Old Testament. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of your field, 
or gather the gleanings of your harvest, you shall leave them for the poor and for the alien or the stranger. I am the Lord your God. What literary form is that one? Now, if you think it's a law, again, you're right. This verse is an example of a law. And some of the questions that we then might ask uh, to understand it better might be, where exactly are the edges of my field? Or, you know, which planet did these aliens come from, if we read alien the wrong way? As we tend to ask with most laws and rules, though, uh, we might also ask, were there any exceptions uh, to this rule? And why am I leaving bits of my harvest for other people? Um, but you can see that this is a law that was written to take care of the poor and the alien or the stranger so that they would be able to find food to eat and so on when they're in the land. Uh, a third one, let me read you this. Jabez called on the God of Israel saying, Oh, that you would bless me and enlarge my border and that your hand might be with me and that you would keep me from hurt and harm. And God granted what he asked. What literary form is that? Not too difficult. That last example is a prayer. So we might ask questions like, who is this Jabez guy? Or, as people have asked, can I pray this prayer for myself as well? In other words, is this verse just telling me that someone else in the past once prayed this prayer? Or is it suggesting that all Bible readers ought to pray like this? So you see, the question of what am I reading is of huge significance when we come to the Bible. Because once we identify what we're reading, the questions we ask in order to make sense of the text depend entirely on our suppositions, our presumptions about what we are reading. We're going to read these very differently. Now, if you're sitting at a desk or somewhere in a bed or you've got a Bible handy, take a look at Genesis 1 verse 1 to 2 verse 3. And look at all the repeated phrases in there. There's a lot of repeated phrases. And God said, and God said, I think that's six times. Let there be is there three times. And it was good five times. And it was so six times. There was evening and there was morning, the nth day. That's six times as well. Now, we've already noted the presence of two important biblical metaphors, or actually three, including monsters. So what genre would we say, what literary form would we say uses repetition and metaphor? And our answer to that question has been poetry. If we were to look for another text like Genesis 1, probably the best fit in the Old Testament would be something like Psalm 104, which is poetry. But look, it's also worth noting that our ideas of literary forms in the 21st century are not always going to match up perfectly with Old Testament literary forms. Do you know what I mean by that? We're not going to necessarily have a one-to-one -one correspondence. We know this even from reading Paul's letters in the New Testament, because we sort of think to ourselves, what's a letter to a church supposed to look like? Pastors today, they don't usually write letters to whole churches, do they? No. So we have to identify these ancient literary forms and then come to understanding and understanding of how they functioned in their time and place before we can properly grasp what they might say to us today. Now, this is something that you'd cover in a first-year introductory course to the Old Testament or New Testament, because it takes a little bit more time than we have on this podcast series to talk about how the literary style of Genesis 1 to 11, which reads differently from Genesis 12 and following, you know, what that might mean, or how to read Deuteronomy as a covenant treaty, 
or how to understand ancient sacrificial laws, which just sound bizarre to us, or how to compare the priorities of ancient history writers from the priorities of historians or journalists today, or what psalms were composed for, why proverbs are important, or our tendency to misunderstand prophecy because we assume that it's all about some distant future. You get the point, I hope. These ancient literary forms have some things in common with contemporary literature, but in many ways, what we need to do is learn how ancient forms of literature functioned in the past. A a drag-and-drop mentality doesn't really work, where we just say, it's a song, and then we just bring it into our current context and think, it's got to operate like songs today. The Psalms don't really operate like songs today. So let me give you an example from Genesis 1, since we're talking about creation. What comes to your mind when you think of creation? And I mean, when you hear the word creation. You think of making stuff, right? Creation is making stuff. In other words, we're thinking about material creation. But while Christians believe that God made everything from nothing, it's not actually an idea that you find very easily in Genesis 1. Now, we already noted earlier that God doesn't make the darkness or the waters in Genesis 1. They're already there. And that's definitely a problem for people who want to insist that this is scientifically what happened, that God created all matter or material from nothing and that that's what Genesis 1 needs to say. But the problems don't end just with that symbolic language of darkness and waters. On the second day, all that God creates is a space, right? The Hebrew word there for, you know, God, this dome that God creates between the waters, rakia, it's it's translated as an expanse or a dome, but the point is God is just putting space between the waters of the sea and the waters in the sky. He's not really making anything. And so our, our idea of creation, of making stuff, doesn't really fit very well. Then on day three, if we read carefully, God doesn't even seem to form the earth or the dry land. If you read carefully, you'll notice he gathers the waters and he says, let the dry land appear. Or if we translate it more literally, let the dry land be seen. Right? So even in what follows, God doesn't then create plants of all kinds. Look at the language. He says, let the earth bring forth or sprout vegetation. Let the earth bring forth or sprout vegetation. And let the dry land appear. And then verse 12 begins by saying, the earth caused vegetation to go forth. It's an interesting way of putting it, isn't it? You see, these verses, they, they don't use the verb create with God as the subject, the one who does the creating. And so sometimes that language is used, sure, but not always. But let's not lose the point here. My point is just to say that when we think creation, we think material creation, making stuff. But when Genesis 1 is accounting for these things, it's not speaking of God making stuff from nothing. Perhaps we could put it this way. The point is not material. It's the concern of Genesis 1 is not material, but functional. I'm going to say that again because this small point clarifies a lot of our problems in Genesis 1. The concern of Genesis 1 is not with the material of creation, but with the function of the created order. So coming back to my point earlier, a drag-and-drop approach to understanding some of these ancient texts, it just doesn't work. 
In other words, don't expect an ancient text about the world's beginnings to read like a 2019 science textbook about the origins of our world. It just won't. It's a different literary form from a very different place and time. As I said earlier, it's helpful to think about how ancient forms of literature functioned in the past. Now, I mentioned in the last podcast in 2.2 that we're often taught to read the Bible a certain way and we never sort of graduate from it. So let's just look a little bit more closely at that. This podcast is on rules of reading. And let's be honest, the Bible's not one of those books that you read once and then you're done. It's not a romance novel. It's not a crime thriller where once you've, you've got to the last page, that's it. And, and you can be done with it. It's not the kind of book where once you encounter a twist at the end, and there is a twist at the end actually, you've got nothing left to gain from reading it. No, Christians read the Bible again and again and again, partly due to our struggle to understand how it all fits together, and partly due to our conviction that the Bible is God's living word. It speaks afresh to us in our shifting circumstances as long as we remain open to it. So why is it, and here's my question, why is it that we sometimes assume that our Sunday school understanding of various stories and verses should happily carry us right through to adolescence and, and adulthood? Why do we assume that? Surely one of our primary rules of reading, and yes, it's another unspoken rule, is that you need to reread books to really get a handle on them. We shouldn't expect that when a Sunday school or parent reads the story of Adam and Eve to us as kids, that they have told us everything that that story has to say. Or take Jonah, for instance. If my five-year-old uh, hears the story of Jonah in Sunday school, I wouldn't be surprised if the takeaway is something like, you can't run away from God. Fine, <laughs> that's great. But at the same time, you know, I taught a class just last semester on how to preach the book of Jonah, and I'm glad to say that every student in that class finished the semester with a sense that there's a lot more going on in the book of Jonah than first meets the eye. We looked at the structure of the book and the way that the book points to Jesus and the importance of forgiveness and Israel's call to be a light into the nations, and, well, there's just so much there. But you simply can't get it all on a first reading. So to recap, let's come back to Genesis. I'd like to recap some of the rules of reading we've covered and give you some examples for how these work, or at least, you know, how they've worked for me. You need to know what you're reading in order to understand it. In the last few podcasts, we've explored that in connection to Genesis 1. If you're looking for a scientific, historical account of how the world came into being, you're simply looking in the wrong place. If you're reading Genesis 1 as a scientific account, then you haven't yet asked, what am I reading? As we've seen, this repetition, this metaphor and imagery, clear poetic structure, it doesn't look like science. So that's the first principle, what am I reading? A second related guideline that we've seen is that the genres or literary forms that we find in the Bible don't always line up perfectly with our 21st century forms. So if we stay with Genesis 1 for a sec, why would God inspire a document in the distant past that would make no sense to its readers, a document written to suit 20th and 21st century readers? When you think about it, it's pretty weird for us to expect God to do that, isn't it? God has always spoken into the context that he's addressing through people of that time and people of that place. 
So don't read Genesis 1 for scientific theories or answers. They're simply not there. A helpful uh, book on this topic, if you want to explore this more deeply, is um, Inspiration and Incarnation by Peter Enns. He basically develops the idea that the inspiration of the Bible is a messy process, just like the incarnation was a messy process. And for the same reasons. Namely, God doesn't stand aloof. He doesn't stand at a distance and speak to us in a language that only he can understand. No, God enters into the mess of human history. He speaks to us in our language, in our literary forms, through human beings. Both the incarnation of Jesus, who is 100% human and 100% divine, and the inspiration of the Bible, which is written by human authors, yet inspired by the Spirit of God, they demonstrate God's commitment to making himself known to us in ways that we can understand. What that means is that we sometimes have to take a second look at Old Testament texts and not expect them just to drag and drop easily into the 21st century. So the same kind of principle applies with the Gospels or with Paul's letters to the churches. And I won't go into those in detail, obviously, but the Gospels are essentially biographies. They're written in a similar way to other Greco-Roman biographies of that time. Not necessarily like biographies that you'd pick up in an airport these days. And the same goes for Paul's letters. They're letters. Letters. Letters are personal. One of the main ways that people misunderstand Paul's letters is that they read his words as timeless truths for every church of every culture, time and place. That's not what letters are for. Galatians is maybe unique in that it was written to a bunch of churches, but that's the exception. Generally speaking, speaking, uh, Romans was written for the Romans and Corinthians for the Corinthians and Timothy for Timothy, who was in Ephesus. And if, if we would read Paul's letters uh, as letters to particular people and times and places, we'd read them better. If we look at the title, <laughs> this one's called Corinthians. So let's see what we can learn about the particular problems the church in Corinth was facing and then see how Paul's letters address those issues. You get the point. So the second principle of interpretation, we might put it as how does this genre work? I need to wrap this up, but we've also noted that specific words in the Old Testament, they don't necessarily have the same meanings now as they did in their ancient context. I used the example of the word create earlier. You know, to say that we think of God making stuff. But Genesis 1 is very much about the function of creation. There are tons of words that that applies to, that principle. Another example from the Old Testament would be the Hebrew word heart. We tend to think of a heart as our emotions or feelings base. But it's probably more like what we would describe as the mind, the Hebrew word for heart. In an Old Testament context, the heart is where you hold your wisdom and And therefore, it's where you discern and make decisions. It's not that place for warm, fuzzy feelings, as we might tend to think. So when we read uh, Deuteronomy 6.5, for instance, you shall love the Lord with all your heart, soul and mind. Moses is saying, love God with your decision making. And let's face it, that's how we recognize love, isn't it? By the decisions people make. Someone might tell me they love me so much, but at the end of the day, If they're not making that love known or visible in their decisions, how can I even really know for sure? So the third principle, if we're going to add a third principle, is try not to make assumptions about what words and concepts mean. 
In other words, maybe be aware that the Old Testament was written in Hebrew, not English, and sometimes some reading around that can help. Finally, an important rule of reading is that you need to reread important texts to really understand them. Once you've read a story through and you've discovered its ending, it can be really interesting, actually, to read it through again and again and see whether there were enough clues in the story for you to anticipate its ending. Um, I'd like to give, me, give you an example of that, but I think I'm out of time on this podcast. Um, I'm just going to get to the, the question at the end. The Bible isn't a book that you read through once and say you're done. That's the point I'm making. If you remain open-hearted, you can read it again and again and again and hear new things each time. So as we finish up this time, my question for you to think on is this. What are some of the things that you assume about the Bible when you read it? If you're in a discussion group, it'd be ideal to be able to chat this out with some other people. What are some of the things that you assume about the Bible when you read it? See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by Trinity College Queensland. Honest answers to tough questions. Visit trinity.qld.edu.au to learn more.